As the Money Burns is an original podcast by Nikki Woodard. Based on historical research, this is a deep exploration into what happened to a set of actual heirs and heiresses to some of America's most famous fortunes when the Great Depression hits. Each episode has three primary sections. Section 1 is a narrative story. Section 2 goes deeper into the historical facts. Section 3 focuses on contemporary, emotional, and personal connections. Story Recap While Barbara Hutton's aunt plan her upcoming debut, Cobina Wright struggles with hiding her financial woes. Meanwhile, the news comes that Doris Duke will be presented at Buckingham Palace. Now back to As the Money Burns. Take a bow. For the royally obsessed debutante, nothing is more enviable than to be presented at court. But such a high honor comes with a steep price. Section 1 Story Thursday, May 15, 1930 Buckingham Palace, time nearish 5 p.m. Outside at the Victoria Memorial Mall, a limousine parks curiously where no car stops. A policeman knocks on the window. The chauffeur politely talks to the officer who issues a stern warning. Rolling up the window, the chauffeur glances in his rearview mirror. Beads of sweat pull across his forehead. From underneath large ostrich feathers, ice blue eyes stare back. The young lady shakes her head absolutely not, and that he is to remain put. Buckingham Palace guards stand at attention while the requisite cloud of onlookers gather for a large ceremony. A few pressmen stroll about. Inside the limo, the tall and awkward teen heiress Doris Duke awaits to make her big swan entrance into society at none other than the Court of St. James. This evening, she will curtsy in front of the King and Queen of England, a rare honor for any debutante, especially an American. Next to her is her socially ambitious mother, Nanaline Duke, somewhat pleased over this social triumph. Doris hates being late and even more, standing in line. She insists that she be first, which is determined by arrival. Doris has spent months in preparation. Dance classes, curtsying, bowing, walking, and all the rituals associated with this event, well practiced over and over. She spent spring in Paris having special custom dresses made for the event and her upcoming private debutante ball. Again, the police comes and insists more forcefully that the limousine move. The arrival ceremony begins at 6 p.m. Not a moment sooner will any vehicle be permitted to block the path. Doris nods, allowing the chauffeur to creep around the mall slower than a snail's pace until other vehicles arrive, preserving for her the priority number one spot. The irony of not wanting to wait in line is that she is still waiting cramped inside a vehicle for nearly as long. There's a bit of agony as Doris contorts her body into an odd position to ensure her dress remains unwrinkled and her hair and feather headpiece stays intact. The feathers constantly attempt to tickle or choke her. The more petite Nanaline rolls her eyes in disapproval. She knows her daughter will likely make some social blunder. As the faraway chimes of Big Ben indicate the six o'clock hour, Doris is indeed first in line as the motor cars arrive and line up behind them. It's a very, very long line. Another 400 will bow at tonight's event. For the later arrivals, it may take well over two and a half hours to enter into the palace. No wonder Doris insisted they stay so close and ready. 
The onlookers peek inside, glimpsing at various beauties while some have shades to block prying unwanted eyes. Other devs are up for amusement during the wait. One has a female chauffeur with a female footman. Knowing this will be a long night in some of the later cars, the ladies enjoy a snack, read a book, or play cards to keep themselves amused. A loudspeaker begins calling for the select debutantes to exit their cars and enter. By now at the Victoria Mall, a considerable crowd hopes to spot the socially notable. But for them, the first debutante is completely unfamiliar. Exiting the limo for the carpet, Doris emerges. Her 5'8 frame showing off like a supermodel. A white chiffon frock embroidered with fine crystal beads accompanied by a silver lame train. She teeters slightly as she adjusts to the weight of the gown. Well rehearsed, she robotically goes through the motions. She carries the large white ostrich fan and on her head, slightly off kilter, are the three large feathers with the center larger than the rest, a style referred to as the Prince of Wales plume. She is magnificent. Accompanying her, Mother Nanaline wears a silver and pink lame gown with brilliance. Nanaline is reliving one of her most glorious moments. Back in 1912, before Doris's birth, Nanaline was presented at court to a younger King George V and his wife, Queen Mary. At the time, Rotund Buck Duke refused to escort his wife as the men were required to wear purple silk knee breeches of the long-forgone style that he felt would make him look like a ridiculous elf. Nanaline gladly attended without him, radiating in a white and gold brocade gown designed by Worth with pearls, diamond-encrusted bodies, and a cerise velvet cape. Now entering the palace, Doris is whisked away into the cold anteroom. There are gilded chairs to sit while awaiting their moment of procession. Only nine other Americans appear in her batch, a total of 17, including the day before. That in a group of 800 ladies total in two days. This evening, seven of the Americans are already married, and thus they are permitted to wear more colorful dresses than the unmarried. In the group the night before included Campbell's Soup heiress, Charlotte Durance, and Radio Magnet's daughter, Elizabeth Betty Kent. This was the first event of its kind in over two years with the king, thus highly in demand. The previous year, the Prince of Wales and his mother, Queen Mary, presided over the ceremony. The ladies await and lean on the tall, gilded chairs. Some are nervous, others overly elated and excited with dreams of fairy tale endings of dancing with the handsome and somewhat eligible Prince of Wales. The energy is contagious. Last-minute adjustments to the plumes and dresses. Others practice their deep knee bow, though the 1920s column dresses don't permit a whole lot of flexibility. The beaded dresses and headdresses are also heavy, adding clumsiness and neck strain. And these aren't showgirls with athleticism and conditioning. Amongst them, Mrs. Charles Dawes quickly greets Doris. Mrs. Dawes is the wife of the American ambassador who could not attend tonight's ceremony due to illness. She serves in his place and guides all the Americans in attendance and will make the formal presentation. Mrs. Dawes loves the glamour as she flutters around looking for the Atlanta Constitution publisher, Mrs. Clark Howe, who as a married woman sparkles in color. No need for the virginal bride look of a young debutante, Mrs. Howe is radiant in a silver and pink moire dress delicately embroidered with small rhinestones. She sparkles in a graceful circular skirt of an even hemline with a train of moire and silver cloth and matching shoes. She also has a pink and silver feathered fan. Mrs. Dawes goes over with Doris and Mrs. Howe the final etiquette and maneuvers. Doris steps forward and hands over her card for the announcement. There, standing at attention under glaring lights in front of these dignified people, Doris freezes and wants to run away. 
afraid she will make a complete fool of herself and trip. She feels the way of a panic and can't distinguish the unfamiliar faces, though she knows and feels one set of eyes peering deep into her soul, commanding her forward. Her mother's. Nanaline would never tolerate such a public embarrassment. The steward urges Doris forward and she complies. Despite all her preparatory work, she might have known best not to be the very first in line. She could have let a few go ahead and replicate their motions. Doris proceeds into the throne room. Crown marker insignias on the carpet indicate where a debutante should stop along the procession. She twists her arm to partially carry the veil, but it still trails a good 18 inches behind her. She kicks back her gown for the final adjustment of the train, then steps ahead. Deep breath. Avoid vertigo. Flush of heat overtakes the body in sheer panic. Plenty of pop and circumstance for this special occasion. Under a golden canopy on twin golden thrones sits King George V in his scarlet colonel-in-chief uniform as head of the military, and Queen Mary in heavy chiffon lace with an overdress of peach chiffon, embroidered pearl and silver, her train of beach and silver brocade, and on her head a tiara of pearls and diamonds. On her breast, the Order of the Garter, along with other jeweled orders. Returned from a recent African trip, Suntan David the Prince of Wales is in his Welsh Guard uniform. Handsome and indifferent next to his fairly ignored brother, Prince Bertie, the Duke of York, and the father to future Queen Elizabeth II. Other males in the room, including ambassadors, even members of the Royal Guard, don more period attire. <laughs> yes, of purple knee breeches of a bygone era, an ode to the origination of the ceremony. As Doris has rehearsed countlessly, glide, appear delicate and graceful, curtsy in front of the king, Glide three steps to the right, curtsy again in front of the queen, continue in the rightward movement towards the door, always facing the king and queen, never ever turn her back on the royals. Doris can feel the sweat trickling down her head as the feather fan tickles her nose. She is for once in her life truly awed by being in front of such majestic royalty. The king is indifferent and rather bored by the endless faces of such a procession. Remember, she is now 401 with almost 400 more to go. The queen curiously looks at the richest girl in the world. Could she be the one to finally win over the reluctant Prince of Wales' heart? She would prefer a British or royal young lady. But David now seems to prefer Americans, especially the married ones. Doris succeeds in the treacherous walk, only to realize another mistake. Being the first in line, she now has to wait for the rest of the ceremony to finish. A whole two and a half hours while the other young ladies walk through and have their curtsying moments. Now to survive the rest of the evening activities. Section 2, History and Historiography This horse and pony show where young ladies bow in front of the king and queen of England is the highest honor any debutante could aspire. A presentation of the grandest sort was afforded to the most noble of British citizens, and upon very rare occasion for Americans or other nationalities. The rise of Gilded Age American dollar princesses kicked off a frenzy of wealthy American daughters vying for access to European royalty. Such an irony, really. It was actually during the American Revolution that the reigning British monarch, King George III, established the Queen Charlotte's Ball in honor of his wife's birthday 
1780, celebrated on or near January 18th, possibly her coronation day. Otherwise, Wikipedia indicates her birthday was May 19th. Despite myths and rumors of this king losing his throne due to the revolution, which ended in 1783, or interruptions due to madness, King George III continued his reign until his death in 1820. While young ladies of proper aristocratic birth were always to be resented in court, a mass official event in its signature debutante tradition seems to have started with Queen Charlotte's Ball. At this event, young ladies both 17 years of age and of noble parentage being presented more formally in a large ceremony to the King and Queen of England. This would signal these ladies are eligible for marriage with the goal of being engaged or married by the end of the social season. The Queen stood by a large cake as the debutantes curtsied to her. The ball was held as a charity fundraiser for a maternity hospital, Journal Lying Inn, currently named Queen Charlotte and Chelsea Hospital. Queen Charlotte's ball continued throughout her life and beyond, and she died in 1818. However, the ceremony in the ball would continue for many years with the reigning sovereign standing by a large cake. Queen Charlotte's Ball was the premier debutante event of the London season, a series of high society social events until World War I. After a brief interruption, the ball resumed and continued royally until 1958. In 1930, the ball was held on May 31st, two weeks after the court presentation. The debutante in court and at the ball was always a focus in fashion trends. From the originally favored hoop skirts and feather accessories for Queen Charlotte, the enlarged feathers to please Queen Victoria, and the 1920s headpieces and fans, especially with large ostrich feathers, becoming a signature feature. The male fashion remained stagnantly attached to the customary purple silk breeches for over a century. During the ceremony, if the young lady is the daughter of a peer, the reigning monarch would kiss her hand. If daughter of a commoner, the young lady would kiss the monarch's hand. However, along that tradition held up when the ceremony became into the multitudes of a hundreds? I'm not sure. The accompanying balls and dinners could be held separately. In 1938 to 1940, as ambassador to the United Kingdom, Joseph Kennedy tried to restrict the number of Americans presented at court, but only after making sure his own two daughters had the experience. There were immense pressures by ambitious mothers to get their daughters admitted, including money, sex, bribes, blackmail, and anything else that might work. In 1958, the young Queen Elizabeth II eliminated the ceremony altogether as it had become far too cumbersome and out of date. As in Princess Margaret's words, We had to stop it. Every tart in London was getting in. When Lord Chamberlain announced the end of the royal ceremony, there was a mad rush to get in, all desperate to have their moment of glory. Already that year in March, over three days, 1,400 debutantes would bow in groups of four to 500 before Queen Elizabeth and Prince Philip. Naughtier girls would wink and try to flirt with Prince Philip. He referred to the ceremony as bloody daft. On July 17, 1958, the final debutante made her bow at Buckingham Palace. 20-year-old Sandra Seagram was the Canadian heiress to the Seagram Whiskey Fortune and had been one of 40 Canadian women plus 200 other Commonwealth girls presented. She bowed to Prince Philip and the Queen Mother. Queen Elizabeth was ill that evening and unable to attend. In the final set of debutantes, many went on with their lives while some became more liberated in the modern era. One became an IRA freedom fighter, another an international Marxist, one a record-breaking helicopter pilot, Jennifer Mather Murray, among others who went on to chair arts and political organizations. In 2013, Queen Charlotte's Ball without the official royal curtsy would be revived by former debutante Jenny Hallam Peel as a social charity and business venture with focus more on business skills and helping charities than marital prospects. Don't worry, the trend would get other makeovers, including hosted at London Savoy Hotel with the young ladies arriving in chauffeured Maseratis.
but the tradition of the formal court presentation has yet to resume. An extra note, Queen Charlotte is rumored to be a partial or mixed-race African descent, a claim made in 1940 by Jamaican-American writer J. Rogers after examining a 1761 portrait by Alan Ramsey and comments by Horace Walpole on the queen denoting select features. Yet many other paintings and contemporary descriptions show and state a more clearly Northern European white ancestry. As paintings can be more idealistic than photos, and DNA studies have not been applied, the veracity of the claim has not been substantiated by more concrete means. For some newsreels featuring the waiting to enter Buckingham Palace, see the links in the notes section. British Pathé, Debutantes for the Court, 1930. Pathé, 1958, newsreel, last of the debutante presentation parties. Section 3, Contemporary and Personal Relevance. This is one of the episodes I've been dying to get to and write. Reading the description in Doris Duke's biographies gave a whole new dimension on such an elite event and the painstaking experience of its reality. This event put a bullseye on the back of Doris. She was already getting too much attention for her fortune, and this was the modern equivalent of turning 18 when the sex-crazed vultures come out, except hers was all about the dollars. It is safe to say many, if not most, girls dream of being a princess, and having some form of a debutante ball experience, especially at court, could be a close realistic equivalent. A desire stoked by media nonetheless with its various depictions. By 2013, the British TV series Made in Chelsea already helped make the debutante trendy again. Most recently in 2020, the Netflix series Bridgerton opens on the main female protagonist Daphne, securing top debutante status after bowing at the court in front of Queen Charlotte. The elaborate feathers and procedures all in play in the fictional world. However, two other depictions are relevant to our tale. In 2016, The Crown featured a quick debate on ending the ceremony. Earlier, Downton Abbey Season 4, Episode 9, Lady Rose makes her court debut in 1923, even dancing with the then Prince of Wales, David. Future King Edward VIII, upon abdication, the Duke of Windsor, and interacts with his then-married mistress, Freda Dudley Ward. That prince always had a thing for married women. Prince David of Wales will be a recurring guest in our series as he f- has far deeper ties to different characters, most importantly, Barbara Hutton's Aunt Jessie Donahue and her son, James Jimmy Jean. Prince Harry and his wife Meghan Markle could have taken a few lessons from his uncle on how to leave the royal family more gracefully and modernizing the monarchy from his grandfather. King Edward VIII's abdication led to Queen Elizabeth's second reign and her consort, Prince Philip, Duke of Edinburgh. As previously mentioned, Prince Philip considered the debutante bows a ridiculous, archaic tradition, though the saucier devs would try to catch his eyes. We will all miss our dearly departed Prince Philip, revered grandfather to the world, and too many titles to name for his red colonel-in-chief uniform. Speaking of the Duke of Windsor and America's Gilded Age, come see how they connected my two webinars on the first two Waldorf Astoria hotels, part one on Wednesday, June 16th, and part two, June 17th, at 5.30 Eastern and 2.30 Pacific. Available via New York Adventure Club, www.nyadventureclub.com, or via the events page at asthemoneyburns.com. Next, when we return to As the Money Burns, A royal debut comes with more attention and activities. The most awkward and least likely debutante is on her way to becoming the most celebrated of this season. Until then.
As the Mighty Burns is an original podcast written, produced, and voiced by Nikki Woodard based on historical research. Archival music has been provided by Past Perfect Vintage Music. Check out their website at www.pastperfect.com. Please come visit us at As The Money Burns via Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. Transcripts, timeline, episode guide, and character bios are available at asthemoneyburns.com.